Oh God. Oh God. It was one of those conversations on a mobile that you can't help but overhear. You know, I was just walking along and uh, here was this lady with the mobile to her ear and really in a loud voice just going, oh my God, she said. And, and I was gagging to, to say, what is he like? Uh, only, of course, I'm just far too wimpish to ever actually ask the question. Um, the, the Apostle Paul is bolder than me, and he does ask the question. He picks up a conversation no one's having with him. Um, that's what's going on here. Paul, well, he, people find themselves, don't they, in cities for a whole host of reasons. If you've been with us, you'll remember uh, last week we saw Paul had been kicked out of two other cities, uh, Thessalonica and Berea, and he's losing himself in Athens while he waits for his friends to catch up with him. And whatever the reasons, friends, family, business, holiday, there are some things in common when you find yourself the tourist in a, a capital city somewhere. You know, there are usually sights to see. Uh, and Paul saw them. Stunning architecture, beautiful art. He'd seen the Parthenon, the, the uh, magnificent marble frieze, the remains in the British Museum, the Elgin marbles, another story for another day. He, he'd uh, seen the sights. Uh, and uh, usually in a strange city, there's also something that gets under your skin, isn't there? It may be poverty, maybe smells, maybe exploitation, maybe violence, maybe sexualization, maybe obscene wealth. Well, something got under Paul's skin too. There's nothing surprising in that, but he was, we see in verse 18, greatly distressed. And that's a powerful word that's used. But it's what distresses him that shocks. He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Thousands of them, one writer estimated, and we're rarely bothered by idols. You know, we might raise an eyebrow at other people's superstitions, as we call them. We may uh, actually appreciate another culture's art, perhaps, but we're, we're not often distressed. We hardly notice our own idolatry as we think of statues and objects from history as idols, and we're blind to the great temples scattered around our city, London, to the gods of today's world. Temples to mammon and materialism and entertainment and sport, the things that take over our energies and our passions and our ambitions. Paul was so distressed, he did something about it. See verse 17? He reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. I mean, you could actually have a spiritual discussion in the public square in those days. Unlike our intellectual elite, which is always trying to close the debate down in our ever more controlling liberal democracy, their intellectual elite was happy to discuss any new ideas. It's a sort of very Mediterranean scene that's conjured up, isn't it? You know, the open air, enjoy the sun, sip your coffee or something stronger, discuss anything new. Well, that's what it mentions in verse 21. And it almost suggests they're happy to talk and discuss about anything uh, as long as they're not expected to do anything about it. And into that setting, Paul introduces Jesus and the communication isn't instantly effective. See in verse eight, 18, what is this babbler trying to say? In verse 20, you're, you're bringing some strange ideas to our ears. 
They think he's talking about foreign gods, plural, because he speaks about Jesus and the resurrection as if there were two gods, Jesus and his consort Anastasia, the resurrection. But Paul gets the opportunity to put the record straight, to clear up the misunderstandings in front of all the top intellectuals of the day on the Areopagus. And here's how he does it. See, he begins with what I called a warning for all. Verse 22. People of Athens, I see in every way you're very religious. A gentle observant start, but it's not going to land up by saying, well, you've got your faith and I've got mine. He's not even going to say, well, at least they believe in God. No, he's going to verse 23. As I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Ouch. I mean, we instinctively resent that kind of talk, don't we? We empathise very often with the unknown God idea but so often have no answer if, oh my God, is followed by what is he like. We'd actually prefer to be ignorant than to have someone else tell me what he's like, especially if God's going to affect our lifestyle choices. Uh, But Paul insists uh, on what he's saying. He's got a category in his thinking that many of us seem to have abandoned today. He, he doesn't speak as an aggressive atheist, of course, far from it, but he believes we can be religious but wrong. Even more striking, when you think that just a few chapters back, he would have been in the same category himself. He knows what he's talking about and he knows the danger of making God in our own image. A human lord would live in a great palace, so we build our churches and our cathedrals, our temples and our mosques, and then if we're not careful, we restrict him to them, limit our religion to what we do in God's house. So verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Or if we had a great Lord, we'd expect to serve him and look to do favours for him. And again, if we're not careful, we'd end up bringing our offerings as if they were needed, shaping our relationship to God by our service as if it were a relationship of merit. You know, I give, I did, I deserve. The truth is, verse 25, he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Paul's time as a tourist leads to a warning even to the very religious not to assume we've got God right. And the obvious question we want to ask, of course, then is, so then, Paul, what is your God like? You know, we we think quite quickly in categories of my God, your God, uh, only he won't answer in those terms. He refuses to reduce God even to a, a Western God or an Eastern God. What was all the talk of Jesus about? Well, very strikingly, he speaks, if you notice, of the God of all. Uh, Look how he does it. Verse 24, we're all made by him. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and doesn't live in temples built by human hands, whether they're the Blue Mosque in Istanbul or St. Paul's Cathedral in London. We're all sustained by him. 
And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. In fact, it's the other way around, verse 25. He doesn't need us, we need him. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. He's only got to withdraw his hand and... Well, yeah, that would be it. I'd have had it. We're all made by him. We're sustained by him. We're we're all destined for him. From one man, verse 26, he made all the nations. Whichever flag you wave, here's the God for you. That they should inhabit the whole earth. And he he marked out their appointed times and the boundaries of their uh, uh, lands. And God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him even though he's not far from any one of us. See, history's got a meaning and a purpose, and this is it. I I don't know what brought you to London. Probably a job, a work, it might have been a friend. Uh, But uh, And I hope it works out really well. But God brought you here to find him. You'll, You'll have to reach out, but he's not hard to find. Verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. We're all destined for him. And we're all judged by him. Therefore, verse 29, since we're God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or skill. He made us. Who are we to do that to him? We see getting God wrong as an understandable mistake. He says it's like a child cutting their parent dead in the street as if they didn't know him. Uh, I can remember going home once. This was when our kids were young. It was the end of a long day at the office. And uh, our two-year-old was there by the door and Claire, my wife, uh, was there and said, here's daddy to, to him. And he took one look at me and he pointed and he said, man. Accuracy, 10 out of 10. You know, two-year-old vocabulary exercise, perhaps impressive. For a loving father, well, I was distinctly underwhelmed. Yeah, you know, I'm more than man. I'm daddy. Forgiveness flows easily when it's a two-year-old, doesn't it? Uh, Ten years on? Ooh, that would have been far more painful. In a real sense, you see, in which I'd have given him life and breath and most things. I'd have changed the nappies, wiped the nose, fed and watered, done homework with him and for him, and he can't do better than man? That would hurt. It's a bit like that with God. You know, we don't make statues anymore, do we? Our idols are mental, not metal. I like to think of God as, we say, and we draw our own pictures. But it's exactly the same thing. Verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. I mean, ignorance can be culpable. It's not always an excuse. What a relief to discover God is merciful. 
Yeah, but now, notice how he goes on, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. It is not humble to be ignorant about God. It's blameworthy. It's blameworthy. It's not enough to rejoice in a merciful God. Something needs to be done. We need to change our minds, our thinking, our relationship to him. We need to repent. 4 verse 31, he has set a day. Uh, It's not in our calendars, but it's on his phone, in his diary. He's set a day when he will judge the world with justice and he'll get us right. There'll be no appeals because there'll be no grounds for them. I shrug my shoulders at the idea of judgment. You know, I laugh it off. I dismiss it as a religious way of controlling people and behavior. But Paul roots it in history. He will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. And he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. That's why I'm talking about Jesus and the resurrection, he says, because he's the key to everything and everyone. His resurrection vindicates Jesus. His resurrection vindicates the the new world Jesus will bring in. His resurrection vindicates the rescue Jesus offers. Uh, Here is the God for all. You notice he made the world and everything in it. He gives everyone life. He made all the nations. He's not far from any one of us. He commands all people everywhere to repent. Uh, He will judge the world and he's given proof for everyone by raising him from the dead. A warning for all. The God of all. And then you just get this little glimpse in this final paragraph of a response from all, a whole range of responses to be exact. There is firstly contempt. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. And and people do sneer, don't they? And sneer's an interesting little weapon, isn't it? Because sneer doesn't handle the evidence and doesn't counter the argument. In fact, the, the, the sneer is designed to close down the argument. It doesn't have room for Jesus in its worldview, so it refuses to consider him seriously. You know, we twitch now with the thought that people will sneer at us if we speak of Jesus, but there is nothing new in that. But it wasn't the only response. There's contempt, but there's also curiosity. You see in verse 32, others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. As if they knew there was something here they couldn't afford to let slip through their fingers. They they hadn't grasped it yet, but they couldn't afford to lose it. There's contempt, there's curiosity, there's conversion. Verse 33, at that Paul left the council. And verse 34, some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. And among them, at least two who became well enough known in Christian circles to be worth naming. 
people would pick up on the names. Among them Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus. He was an intellectual. Oh, so that's where it all began for him. Yes. Also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. Yeah, Dionysius is the reminder, you don't have to lose your mind to turn to Jesus. I remember talking to an international scientist telling me of how he was persuaded of the truth of Jesus as a student and we're decades later and he's still following him. Now, we'll all be at one of those points. Yeah, contempt may spring very quickly to your lips and mind. Curiosity, you maybe said, look, look, there's something going on here. I really don't understand it. I'd like to hear more. Or maybe you are rejoicing because you are converted. You know, of all the philosophers and eggheads in Athens that day, these are the ones remembered in eternity. The ones who believe Jesus. So don't be intimidated or enticed out of your privilege. And if you're just curious, don't stop there. If God's been speaking to you, it's so that you'd reach out for him and find him. Let's pray. Gracious God, you've given us our our minds for a purpose. May we be of humble minds that reach out for you and joyful minds that find you. For Jesus' name's sake, amen.